This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. The temple in ancient Israel was more than just a worship center. It was the hospital, the government, the judicial system, and even a financial institution. Steve Siefkin joins us tonight for a refreshing perspective on the temple system and how we can use it as a model to keep the Torah at the center of our lives today. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom Torah fans, where you been all week? Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. The temple in ancient Israel was the center of worship, right? Well, yeah, but there's a lot more. It was also the hospital, the government, the judicial system, and even a financial institution. And it was not just one building. The temple system was actually a tiered system of branch offices that looked after all the aspects of daily life in Israel. It's probably a perspective you haven't heard before, but tonight we're going to get into it with the temple system with Steve Siefkin. And before we get into all of that, let's get into the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. We are on the second Shabbat of the fourth month now. Let's talk about a few things with my co-hosts, David Robinson and Keith Johnson. Good evening. We're back, we're back, we're Shabbat back. Shalom. I can't believe it. You, you, can't, you, know, you let us, you let us you're here, yeah. <laughs> well, we've been here all One month. You know, what's another day? You know, but you know, today is the okay. So we talk about end times. Lots of things are ending. You know, today's the last day of the month, even though we're in the middle of a Hebrew month. We're in the last day of June, which means last day for a love gift that we'll talk about. Last day for the. You know, summer of savings yes. uh, that we're having. And a new one starts tomorrow. A new one starts tomorrow. So yeah, crazy stuff. But uh, yeah, so we are, uh, you know, in the end times. And Keith, you were telling me about before the camera came on um, the the temple. We were talking about the temple system, mm -hmm. and that you were able to do something at the temple mount last yeah, time actually, you went. This this we, you know all all month we basically put in little shorts, what I call little appetizers yeah. from Israel, and just to see if there's a good response, and if there's a good response, you and I, and hopefully some of our other guests, will do an entire buffet of the Bible Beyond Borders, which we can do a whole series. But this is the last of this, this month. And so I decided on the last one, and I had no idea that we were gonna be talking about the temple, but I actually asked Yehuda Glick to do us a favor and to take our group specifically up to the Temple Mount, where I think this little one we're gonna show here is where I'm actually reading the Bible. Mm. on the Temple Mount, related to those of us that are there coming as foreigners. Solomon prayed for us mm. in the Bible, and we're there fulfilling that, and then mm. we prayed there on the Temple Mount, and that will be on the free app, the Michael Root app, where we'll do a teaching where Yehuda himself will take us. We just got back, where he took us around. He said, Keith, I have not experienced this for the longest time. The security let him go closer than he's been with the group for for years, he went mm. with our group, so it's pretty amazing. But again, that's what we can see today, where God says his eyes and his ears are there today. Forget about that golden dome, and forget about all the tensions, and forget about all the struggles. His eyes and his ears are there, that's the place that David purchased from Aruna, and guess what, it's there today. I mean, it's pretty mm. amazing to be able to do and we're that. We're gonna get to watch this right, right after this little section Absolutely. here. Absolutely, right? we'll have okay. a section real quick where I do a reading from the scripture, uh, right after we were 
at this open yep. before this. And then for anyone who wants a little bit more teaching their children as we've done all month. How much fun is this, this by the way? I love it. Yeah. This whole month is like, like for kids, but I'm yeah. like, let's extend it. It's, you know, I've got enough. Let's do some extras for the rest of the summer for yep. kids. I mean, Absolutely. I just... I just think I think we're we're, we're right in line with uh, with teaching our children um, and bringing Israel to them. Let them understand. Well, Absolutely. we teach our children and show them, display to them yeah. how what marriage looks like. Yes, and that then, too. Yeah, and then later in life, Amen. you see a decline in divorces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so forth because yeah. kids. Have you, you've been issues. a marriage counselor in the right. past, right? Mm -hmm. So you and your wife, mm -hmm. and uh, so I'm. Do you? I mean, are you able to? Like when people come to you for marriage counseling, does it? Are you able most times to help them understand to stay together or to, you know? Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, depending on the circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but just um, basically some of the protocols that we talked about in our teaching of uh, how to hit the mark and once they learn that and they're really willing to step, take a step forward and try to apply it, mm -hmm. you see marriages that are at the divorce table mm -hmm. turn around. Amen. Wow, you know, that's great. Yeah. And it starts with the Torah, right? I mean, that's really what yeah. it is. That's whole, the whole foundation of it. Mm -hmm. Now, remember that this is the last day right. to get this, but since it's Shabbat, and if you don't wanna you know, do any financial transactions, even for a gift to the ministry on Shabbat, we might just let this go for maybe another day. So. Yeah, maybe the week. <laughs> we have the power to do that. So we might just do that. So there might be two love gifts up there for a couple of days. Okay. Yeah, just, all right, just, so. just for the weekend. Just for the weekend, yeah. And it's the last day for all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Keith, actually, there's a last day for you too in this regard. Some, pe some people might think I'm absolutely crazy to say this, but this actually happened in real time. I had no plan, no idea, no thought I was going to go to Saudi Arabia until the last day. Someone's came to me and said, Keith, would you like to go? And I said, yes. And you know, the father went like this. There might be people, this is the last day, on July 1st, they have to have their deposit in. So they go to BFA International, front page, tours. If someone feels inspired that they want to be there, they want to go to the Temple Mount, they want to go to these places, they want to take the Bible and see these places, north, south, east, and west, during the time of the holiest day of the year in Israel, mm. which is Yom Kippur, by July 1st, there's still a couple spots available and we will make it available. Oh, wow, okay, cool. If That's by cool. July 1st, they put in their deposit, we, if we have to get a different private car for them, they can come, <laughs> I'm telling you. But Scott, it's gonna be amazing. Yeah. We're gonna go over there and show people, uh, and show you, uh, show our SNL crowd uh, what's happening there in the spirit of Michael, which is, like I said, has always been the case. It's why I wanted to come in this month. Uh, he inspired me at Passover. We gotta bring more of Israel into what you guys are right. doing because that's always what he's done. And I just think for those who can never get on the train, plane, or automobile, let's bring it to them. Well, that's how, you know, it's funny. Those teachings that Michael did 20 years ago are, are still how a lot amazing. of people genius. find yeah. this out. Yeah. Genius is what he is. Where they're all sitting there going, there's got to be something more than this church pew. And they yeah. go online and yeah. they see like the yeah. Red Sea Crossing or something yeah. Yeah, on, on YouTube. Yes. The land, the people, the God of Israel, I'm telling you, he's got it hardwired in the ground when mm. you're there. You can feel it. I'll tell you, you can feel it. It's amazing. I hope people will uh, consider it if they have the ability to come, come with us. And, you know, and something we don't think of um, with, the, with the whole, when, when we see Israel in the Temple Mount, we think, oh, that was the center of everything. And I used to think that too, but you know, Steve Seifkin taught me something on this whole series we're mm -hmm. going to start tonight, is that it was a system. Mm -hmm. Like there was a temple, but then you think of, well, you know, you, you're supposed to take, you're supposed to do these things at the, at the, uh, the city or the gate, or yeah. The, uh, the gates of the city. But how could you do that if you weren't at the temple. Mm -hmm. There was a branch of the temple at the city gate mm -hmm. to help you do certain things. Right. I, yeah, I never thought about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. In the ancient Israel, I'm telling you, there's so much that we can learn and that we can apply today. I yeah. agree with that. A learn from then, 
and apply it today. It's almost like the father has this wisdom that he could like do something from 3,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago that still applies today. That's mm-hmm. for those believers that still look at the Bible and say, this book is for me, yep. mm-hmm. all of it. Amen? Yep. <laughs> and you know, if, if we look at how this country was founded, a lot of the principles they kind of borrowed from the Torah, and you know, it wasn't oh, perfect, yeah. but, yeah, but th- that whole tiered system, mm-hmm. we have that in government today. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's just, absolutely. it makes a lot of sense. I, I, Not everything has to go to the, the one big place. Right. I, I did a study on the 613 commandments and went through all of them and ones that pertain to the land and to the temple or whatever. And <clears throat> the church is following roughly around 80% of it, mm-hmm. you know? And so they complain and say that the laws they have are judicial systems, the laws of our judicial judicial systems, I can't talk, <laughs> um, and so forth. They're actually doing it now and don't even realize it. Wow. Because well, we're rough. Let's get into it. Steve, yeah. Steve had a really good perspective on this. So Steve Siefkin joins us tonight for a refreshing perspective on the temple system and how we can use it as a model to keep the Torah at the center of our lives. The Kiddush with Michael is next, stay with us. This is from Solomon. Moreover, concerning the foreigner, say foreigner, that is not of thy people Israel, and he shall come out from a far country, even as far as Louisiana, for thy name's sake, for they shall fear thy great name, and of thy mighty hand, and of thine outstretched arm, when he shall come and pray toward this house, hear thou in heaven from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the foreigner, say foreigner, call. What you prayed? Whether you've been married for 30 years or 30 days, you know that marriage takes a lot of work. And that means having a firm foundation based on the Torah. When we're dealing with a lot of broken homes, a lot of broken marriages in our day and age, this is something that far too often is taken for granted. The family is the mother and the father that are one. And if they're not one, that child is in a broken home. Foundations for a Healthy Marriage with homeschool curriculum authors Craig and Ann Elliott explores how lifelong love begins with teaching preschoolers about godly relationships and how bringing adults back to the basics of the Torah can help repair a marriage that has gone the way of the world. This teaching is our gift to thank you for supporting A Root Awakening International. When you donate $50 to this ministry in June, we'll send you Foundations for a Healthy Marriage with Craig and Ann Elliott on DVD or Blu-ray. Donate $100 and we'll send you Foundations for a Healthy Marriage plus the Ten Commandments etched on olive wood from Israel, English on one side and Hebrew on the other. Donate $300 and we'll send you the teaching, the Ten Commandments on olive wood, plus a solid pewter kiddush cup featuring a scene of Jerusalem and the blessing over the wine in Hebrew. Borei Pri Hagafen. These gifts are a limited time offer from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Get these exclusive thank you gifts when you make a donation to support A Root Awakening International in June. Call 888-766-3610 or get your gifts online with a donation at monthlylovegift.com. 
When the resurrected saints are gathered together on the sea of fire and glass for the 10 days of awe, the 10 days of inspection, and then getting dressed for the marriage supper of the Lamb, we wait to hear if our name is called into the marriage supper of the Lamb, into the Mishkan in heaven, where Yeshua will sit at the head of the table, where As John says, he sees the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of Yeshua, and he is sitting on it, and we go into the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this is when Yeshua's promise is finally fulfilled. He told his disciples on the night of the Last Supper, when he blessed the Most High with the prayer of the Melech Zadik, Baruch Atah Yehovah, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. I am your provision. By my stripes, you will be healed. And then Yeshua, as he took his cup and he passed it around to his disciples, he said, I will not drink this again till I drink it with you, my father's kingdom. The marriage supper of the lamb, Yeshua will take his cup and he will say again, this represented and still represents the renewing of the covenant. The covenant that offered to make you priests and kings, I paid the death penalty. I paid the price for the broken covenant and now, now you get to drink with me in my father's kingdom. You are the ones that are going to live and reign with me upon the earth for a thousand years because I paid the price. Until the marriage supper of the Lamb, we do this in remembrance of him. Shabbat Shalom. When we talk about the tabernacle or the temple, we could talk about the things in the temple and what they were used for or the different types of sacrifices or even how it relates to Yeshua. But there's a whole other subject matter surrounding the tabernacle and the temple that we're going to talk about today with a guest who's been here before. Please welcome Steve Siefkin. Welcome, Steve. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be back. I enjoyed my time last time. You're a great teacher, I think, because... You are a teacher, so for those who didn't see the previous uh, episodes, uh, you've actually done a love gift with us, and you've also done another series of Shabbat Night Live. Uh, just briefly tell us uh, uh, what you do for a living and uh, what your wife does for a living, actually, as well. Well, both my wife and I are teachers. My wife is a language arts teacher. She teaches from home in an online environment. I'm a physical education teacher. Uh, we live in a small city called Awanga. Go ahead and try and find that on a map. But <laughs> it's out in the middle of nowhere near near a bigger city called Temecula. We're okay. kind of the mountains east of Temecula. In California. In California, okay. yes. And you've joined us here today, and, and your wife actually teaches online on the East Coast, so she's up real yes. early. <laughs> she wakes up real early so she can teach online and deal with East Coast times. And then she homeschools our kids afterwards. So she'll be done like 9 or 10 o'clock, oh. and then she gets to homeschool our kids. So. Oh, nice. That's a good good. Yeah, it works out great. great. We love it. We're pretty far from a school, so trying to get them to school would be pretty difficult. Interesting. Okay, well, thank you for joining us. And uh, yeah, when we were talking before the cameras came on, you told me some really interesting things about uh, the tabernacle and the temple. And yeah, we could talk about the sacrificial system (laughs) and all that, but that's what I first thought when you wanted to come talk about the temple. I thought, oh, okay, well, we're just going to go through that whole thing. And then when we started talking about all this, 
I think this is gonna be a really interesting <laughs> series for people to, to see. Uh, so first of all, let's, let's talk about the, the Tabernacle of Moses and uh, where we go with uh, the implements, what they all mean, and just uh, an overview of what, what this is all about. Well, this is probably my favorite topic, by far. The Levitical priesthood, the tabernacle, and just um, how it functioned. But uh, typically what you hear is how that pictures our Messiah. And all that is absolutely true. I, I would never uh, change any of that. Most of the teachings you'll see on that, they do picture our Messiah. But what did it actually do? What was the mm -hmm. purpose? That's what has just changed the way I see the scriptures. And um, just looking at the Bible, as I mentioned last time, as a law book, it, it, it's a law for a nation. And, and that's kind of what I want to go over this episode is which angle to look at the scriptures from. Because sometimes it, what, what's helped me out is looking at it from a slightly different angle, from a legal perspective, mm. from a national perspective, instead of a religious perspective. Okay, so even the, the, mm. the temple falls into that as well? Because I think that's all what people think about the temple and the tabernacle. It was all to do with the the Israelites' faith, and that's all it ever was. But but there's a different angle to this? There's a lot more than that. Sure, it did, but it, it did have a religious aspect to it. But most of it was just how you would govern your nation hmm. and how um, government functions. And that's what the Levitical priesthood really was. It was the government of Israel. Hmm. And sometimes in our teachings, we, we just kind of overlook that. And uh, it's true, these picture the Messiah, but I think the picture gets a lot crisper and sharper hmm. when you understand the real meaning behind these things and what they were doing. Well, the priests also, from my perspective too, I mean, they, they had a, uh, they were the doctors. As well, right? You know, if you if, if there's a sore, you go, go see the priest and he will determine all this kind of stuff. It, they were the doctors. They were the lawyers. I mean, they call them, the you know, some uh, translations of the Bible call them the lawyers of the law or the lawyers, right? Or the doctors of the law. Yeah, you know, all those absolutely. terms are all in there. <laughs> in fact, what I want to cover in this whole series, there's four purposes. It was a judicial system. It was food regulation. It was a hospital, the CDC, Center for Disease Control. And it was a banking system. And mm. bank probably isn't the best word, maybe a credit union. I mean, bank kind of distorts what it was actually doing just a little bit because what we do for banking isn't quite right, probably. Right. But um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it was the government of the nation. Huh. <clears throat> okay, very interesting. All right, well, go ahead. Tell well, us. I, I always like to start by just explaining this perspective I go through when I come to the Torah specifically, but the Bible, um, you know, in, in general. Um, the spirit of the law is the way the Apostle Paul told us to interpret the law. And we look at that. I covered this in the first episode last time. <clears throat> but uh, the spirit of the law in every legal dictionary basically says the spirit of the law refers to ideas that the creators of a particular law wanted to have effect. It is the intent and purpose of the lawmaker. So when you look at the letter versus spirit of the law, I kind of see it on a spectrum. You've got the letter all the way on one side, and then way on the right is what the church typically does, which is spiritualize the law. And, oh, it pictures Jesus this way or Yeshua this way. It pictures the Messiah like that. And we come with all these pictures, and that's all fine and good, but the spirit of the law is really in the middle. What was the purpose behind this? So the question to ask is why? Why did God say to do this? It's true, it all pictures the Messiah, but we'll get a better picture when we understand why they did it. So it's, uh, it's is it literal, is it spiritual? 
Yes. It's both. <laughs> it's both. But we got to get that middle ground done first. We got to yeah. understand why God said to do it and how it worked in Israel. And then you'll see the picture of the Messiah better. You'll see Yeshua all over this. Mm. And um, the best example I can think of is the burnt offering. It's really misunderstood, but and we're going to get to that eventually, but it was basically a contract ratification. Mm. That's what it was. When you think of ratifying a covenant, God keeping his covenant, that's the picture it makes of our Messiah. The picture of what happened, you know, he died on a cross, but it wasn't anything like on an altar. You know, he didn't have his throat slit, he wasn't bled out, he wasn't burned. Sure. All these pictures don't really picture the Messiah. But does he keep covenant? Oh, you bet he does. He sure does keep covenant. And that's the picture of the burnt offering that our Messiah has. And that's, that's what I want to share today is what did these things really mean? And then, you know, that picture will get clearer. So representation of what it was, not literally it has to be this or it's not. Well, if, yeah. if we're going literally, it just doesn't picture it. Right, yeah. It really doesn't. I just described it a vaguely. And, it, there's really no picture there. Right. The, the cross and an altar, they don't look the same at all. Well, and that's, you know, that's good in a way, too, because then it, it distorts, or it, rather it, uh, it gets rid of that whole argument. Some people say, well, God would not have had a, a, a human sacrifice. So, you know, the, what Jesus <laughs> it, it, did it, doesn't count. Well, no, no you're, you're seeing it wrong. What I've noticed is looking at the scripture this way answers so many difficult questions I had. And it's not just like a kind of good answer. It's like a really good answer. Mm. Something that you just really don't think of too often. Mm. But um, I wanted to share this just to think a little differently. Uh, the Pharisees were 1,300 years after Moses, right? Mm -hmm. And they thought they had it all right, but they had it all wrong. The church today is 2,000 years after the Messiah. And we believe we've got it right for some reason. <laughs> I think we should be open-minded for a kind of a different way of looking at things and just consider the fact that 2,000 years of church history, we've gone away from the truth. And that's kind of what your ministry is all about, you know, a rude awakening is all about, yep. is trying to go back to what the original church was and, gosh, even back to the time of Moses and how they were doing things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm about, too. That's what I want to do. And I'd, I'd love to share that with you guys. Today. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Well, let's unravel this onion and see what's inside. <laughs> okay. I shared this last time as well. Um, when I studied the, the Torah, I, I tackled it like a law book. So what I did... I. The Messiah said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God, love Jehovah your God, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And I took all the Ten Commandments and put them under those. I've got it up here on the slide as four and six. Sometimes I have it five and five. I can't decide because that fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, they're like your first God-given authority. They're like the government for the family. Mm -hmm. And what I shared last time is, the first four commandments are pretty much all government. Do you remember when I shared, it was actually the love gift last time. Yeah. It's all government and we miss that sometimes. When you, but when you look at the statutes, they're all government. Every single one is government. And here's a few obvious ones. Uh, court policies, foreign policy, kings, law of the land. When you just go through every single one, the priesthood, tithing, appearance in public, believe it or not, is government. Uh, there's one I titled just government, the head tax, judges, ju judgment, uh, Sabbath and feast days. All of these are government. And that's what the first four commandments are about. 
And it just changed my perspective on, well, what does all this mean? And I shared it in the love gift. I don't want to get into all the details, but all the priesthood and the offerings fit under these first four commandments. They just won't fit in the second six or the, the, the five or however you want to look at it. They fit under the first four. They're government. Mm. And, you know, that, that's kind of significant, I think. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that fifth one, I use that example for folks all the time now, since you got me to think that way, is that, yeah, your parents are the first representation of God. So when you disobey your, disobey your parents, you're disobeying God. And it's sort of the connection between the first four and the last uh, six, I guess, right? Yes, it's like a connecting link between the two, between love Jehovah your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Your parents, they're the government of your family, right? Yeah. You know, my father and my mother, they governed my family as a child. Now, my wife and I are governing my family, and we're supposed to submit to Yehovah. And that's kind of the whole point. That's a heavy responsibility for a parent when you look at it that way. You know, it's that much more serious what you're teaching your kids. Like, if you are the go between between God and your children, wow. You know, how yeah. many people really think about it like that? It's what, you know, in ancient societies, they, they were called patriarchal families. That, that's what this is the patriarch was mm. the head of the family, and they also were kind of running the government of the ancient societies. Mm. And, you know, we don't really do that anymore. Um, it would be nice if we did, because that's kind of the system God set up. But, um, you know, I'd like to share kind of how we're doing this. Sure. So, trick question. What religion did the Messiah teach? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> You, you, what I'm going to get to is he really didn't. It's a trick question. The Messiah did not teach religion. He taught the kingdom of God over and over again. He didn't teach religion. He taught about nations. He taught about a kingdom. And that is often missed in teachings today. The Messiah taught that the gospel of the kingdom of God, that's what he taught, the gospel of the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. Over and over again he said this. The Bible is not about religion. It is about kingdoms. The word religion is only in the scriptures five times. Really? Well, Vieira looked it up five times. Huh. And two of the times, we say it's a positive, but it's really not. I want to share that with you. Only once is it used as a positive. And right here, James says it twice. If any man among you seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I, this is my understanding of this. He's not making this a positive. He's turning a negative into a positive. At the time of the Messiah, it was very common for them to say something like, I fast every Tuesday and Thursday. That's their religion. Because mm. what does the word religion mean? Both definitions, it's the Greek word threskos or threskia. It means ceremonial worship, rituals. So ritualistically, every Tuesday and Thursday, I fast. Look at me. Yeah. Look how great I am. I fast every Tuesday and Thursday. The Messiah said, hey, don't even tell anybody when you do that. Keep it to yourself. But that wasn't their culture. That's what they did. What James is saying, hey, if you want to be really religious, go help the fatherless every mm. Tuesday and Thursday. Be religious about that. Yeah, be religious <laughs> about visiting people in prison. Help, help mm. you know, starving people. If you want to be religious, make it outward, not towards yourself. And it's made me just realize, look at this chart I've got up here. Religion's in the Bible five times. The word kingdom's in the Bible 342 times. 
And the word nation's in the Bible 481 times. And kingdom and nation are kind of the same thing. What is the Bible really about? Hmm. It's about kingdoms, it's about nations. So when I study the Bible, especially the sacrificial system, I compare it to America, or just any nation really, and see how are we doing? Because Israel was God's example. They weren't perfect. Sometimes they got it right. You know, under King David, King Solomon early on, he did a real good job. Josiah, there's a lot of kings that had it right and they did a really good job, but they probably weren't doing 100% perfect. And then they had some times where it was really bad. And what we need to do is compare America to that and see how we're doing. And that's just critical to me, is looking at it from this national perspective. It answers so many questions. I think you'll see that as we go through the tabernacle. You'll see that a lot of difficult questions, just what I would consider a really good answer that just makes sense. So God is dealing with nations, not religions. Remember the Tower of Babel? Yes. He divided the nations right there. He's talking about nations. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. More nations. Yep. Always nation, if you want, yeah, if you want to call Sodom and Gomorrah little little kingdoms or whatever, yeah, they were yeah. cities, they were nations. Sure. They were. He's dealing with. He wasn't dealing with a religion. He's dealing with a nation. God judged Egypt, dealing with a nation again. Mm-hmm. Why did He judge these nations that weren't Israel if they weren't expected to follow God's law? That's a good question. Because they were committing sin, they were breaking His law, and He punished them. That's hardly fair if they weren't expected to follow it. Every nation is supposed to keep God's commandments. Every nation is supposed to keep God's Torah, including America. And we need to judge ourselves based on the standard, the example God gave us. You know, there's more examples. Babylon, over and over again. Even in the New Testament, what did our Messiah say? Nation after nation. Um, God told Abraham he would be a father of many nations, not religions. I know I backtracked a little bit, but I didn't want to forget that. Yeah. That's important. It is. He didn't say, I'm going to make you a whole bunch of na- uh, religions. I'm going to make you a whole bunch of nations. Right. And that's exactly what he did. The New Testament, the Messiah spoke about to be a witness unto all nations. The Great Commission, go unto all nations. Everything's about nations. Shall be called of all nations. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about nations. Paul did the same thing about nations. This word is everywhere in there. Hmm. Even in the book of Revelation, what's the Messiah going to come back and deal with? The nations. Mm-hmm. He's going to war against the nations. I will make you and a nation of make, priests and kings. Yes, and everything yeah. is about nations in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And we've, I, I think our enemies kind of made us look at it from this religious perspective. And we miss a lot of key points in the Bible as a result. And it's not that we get everything wrong, but I think if you, if you change your perspective to look at it through national eyes, it just makes so much more sense and it follows logically and there's all the difficulties just kind of disappear because it just starts to make sense. In thee shall all nations of the world be blessed. When the Messiah returns, I already said this, he's going to deal with nations in the book of Revelation. Hmm. So... My understanding is we're going to look at this through the eyes of a nation and how one of God's kingdoms or nations is going to be and how we should act and how we so should. So when a nation is going astray, is it because of their religion? I mean, sometimes we see that as like, for example, you know, like uh, we talk about Muslim nations or Islamic nations, you know, within those borders, 
they have Sharia law, for example, or whatever. So now they're kind of one and the same, right? They're sort of religion and the nation. Yes, and when you really look at America, when we started out, our church and government were hand in hand. In fact, you could argue in colonial America, the government came from the church. Mm. And the government that was established, they weren't gonna stray far from the church either because they knew that's where the people were. So I, I believe the church is supposed to be intimately involved in government. Here in America, we separated church from state. There's our problem. Mm. We're not going the direction that God told us to go. And we're not following that direction because our church is not involved in those decision-making processes. Mm. And I think that's, that is what needs to be fixed. Um, we're never going to join church and state in America, but people who believe should get involved, should probably right. be more involved. I'm a teacher by trade, so I like to share this. I like to teach it. It's just a passion of mine to be able to build presentations and share it with people. That's just what I like to do. So Indeed. I see that as my role. Maybe someday running for office or something, but I don't know. So if we see it all crashing <laughs> down, maybe that's not such a bad thing because it will force us to start over and rethink maybe. things. Maybe. It, it might make us rethink things. Yeah. But, you know, this is just something that I'm very passionate about. Okay. So hold that thought. We're going to come back in a second. Uh, so thank you for being here. And thank you for bringing Stephen here because uh, Stephen, Stephen Seifkin or Steve Seifkin, what do you yeah. like to go by? I go by Steve Seifkin. Steve, but... let's stay. Thank you for bringing Steve here. So <laughs> we're on a first name basis now with him. Yeah. So thank you for bringing him here. Uh, your donations make that possible. That's how we do this. We pay it forward. We pay it so that other folks can see this into the future. So you've already done that. We pray that you would do it again. We're going to give you a couple of minutes. We will be right back. Thank you. Welcome back to Shabbat Night Live. Thank you for your support. You know, Michael Rood says it all the time, the gospel of the kingdom. Yeshua didn't talk about the gospel of the religion. You know, it was the gospel of the kingdom. And when we pray, it's not, you know, well, I will be done. The kingdom come. It's not, it's not religion come. It's a kingdom. We're talking about government. We're talking about nations here, right? It's not really a religion per se that we're talking about here, is it? Absolutely. That This is my passion is trying to straighten this out. Um, God's kingdom is a kingdom. It's not a religion. Uh, God deals with nations and not religions. And this is what I want to cover throughout this episode, but I just want to cover kind of the first part here, uh, the tabernacle. His kingdom consists of a tabernacle and temple. Obviously, the tabernacle kind of turned into the temple over time. Uh, God's kingdom consists of a priesthood, and God's kingdom consists of the Levites. That third one we miss. We think they're just little helpers to the priesthood. And they're more than that. They're not as important as the priesthood. They're kind of a mini priesthood all on their own. And we miss that in the scripture because the temple overshadows everything. Because it just makes sense. They're the biggest legal institute of the nation. That's what God's going to be recording. That's the direction the nation goes. It's no different than us with like our Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., what happens there filters down to the rest of the nation. The same thing's true in ancient Israel's time. So, so with the Le Levites, what, how would they equate to like the judicial system here? Would they be the, the lawyers? Would they be the, how, what, what would they look like in our society? Well, it's a tiered system. And I'm, you're, you're jumping ahead of me because oh, okay, this is well, my fourth let's presentation. Let's not give it away then. <laughs> but no, it's okay. Uh, you don't always see it until you can actually go through the scriptures, and that's what I want to do on the fourth episode. Okay. Maybe the fifth, depending on how these Oh, go. wow, okay, so but, um, folks are going to be here for a little bit. Ho hopefully. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's a tiered system. And the Levites were the bottom tier. 
Hmm. And we miss that in the scriptures. They were spread throughout the nation in the gates of the city, running a mini priesthood in their own locale. Ah. And we don't see that that often in the scripture. We've missed that. But the scripture pretty much tells us that. And history tells us that also. And we're so focused on the temple. Not that I'm, again, I love the temple. But it, it's a temple system. I think you were the one that was saying that earlier when we were talking. Mm-hmm. It's a system. It's not just the one building. And uh, I'd like to share that. So the tabernacle offerings. Here's something I like to also point out. We have assumed they have been abolished. That's just an assumption we make. The scripture really does not say that. The problem we have, the scripture says they're forever. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. So most of us say, well, yeah, they were before the te- destruction of the temple. Now during this time, we can't do them because the temple's gone. And I'm, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that. But then we're going to start them again. And what I'm trying to share is I think we're misunderstanding them. Mm. And I think when we look at it through the spirit of the law, and what God intended for them, instead of just trying to picture the Messiah always, not only will we get a better picture of the Messiah, but we'll understand you know, their place for today. Hmm. So that, that's where I, I kind of want to go. Uh, the Apostle Paul did them after the resurrection. Yep, that's true, right? Why, why was it, wouldn't that be wrong? If, if Yeshua, if, if, yeah. if Jesus or Messiah got rid of it, why did he do it? In fact, in I think it's Acts 20 or 21, they challenged him. People don't think you keep the law. Prove it to them. Do this offering. It was a Nazarite vow. Yeah. And his whole purpose for doing that was to prove I still keep the law. And, pay, chose, and pay for other and people to do it. Paid for others to do it. Which was, to my understanding, a huge sum. It was like the, an annual salary. It, it was a it, big deal. It probably wasn't cheap, but... I find it very interesting that he chose the sacrificial system as a way to prove that he keeps the law. Hmm. And, and we just, this topic is very neglected today. And I, I've been very passionate well over a decade trying to figure it out. And I, I, I think it makes a lot more sense than we give it credit for today. The Millennial Temple has a brazen altar also. Good point. It's coming up. So we're going to do it again. So those, that's the problem we have, and I would like to address that. So here's a tabernacle overview. Um, this is just a rough picture of what a tabernacle would look like. This is a, an older drawing. Um, the tabernacle had a gate right in the front. That's where you would slaughter the animal. And that's what the word sacrifice really means. If you look at it, it just means to butcher or slaughter an animal. Um, I think we put the religious overtones on it. You know, a sacrifice, like it's some religious thing. I don't see it that way. Um, the Day of Atonement, maybe. That's something different. And that's what what I really want to get to in one of the later So it's more episodes. of an offering. It's just sort of giving of something you have. Yeah, it's something. That's really what pictures the Messiah, the, the, what is the Day of Atonement. He did that one. And that's what I'm trying to build up to. After the the gate was the bronze altar. Okay, it was eight foot by eight foot by five foot. I'm skipping the cubits because that confuses me. So I just tried to translate it to feet, which is what we use that, today. That's not. <laughs> that's the only one we don't have in here because it's so big we yeah. couldn't fit it in this little area in the ministry. <laughs> but I like to use just the common language we use today. To, it just helps people understand. Yeah. I, I find it gets confusing. When I was confused at a cubit. I had to go look it up and figure out what it's, the arms. Like, and I'd rather just say this. So that's the reason I do that. It was brass over acacia wood. It's where the offerings were burned. The purpose was to basically barbecue meat. 
It was yeah, just a big barbecue because the offerings were eaten. We missed that. They weren't, it's not like God had, you know, he just enjoyed the smell of burnt flesh. That, that's the picture we get. And I don't, that's not at all what it was. These people survived off the sacrifices. It was their food. And we missed that. And yeah. Now, some of them, of course, were burnt and not touched, and that was... The burn offering. The burn offering. The yeah, burn offering was, different. except for the skin, the skin went to the priest. And uh, when we get to that, you'd be surprised what that was for. History oh, okay. of temples, um, the history of temples just in the ancient Near East gives us a great answer. In fact, the scripture gives us a great answer. We just kind of gloss over it and not realize it. But everywhere the burnt offering was done, it's clear what it was for. But I don't want to jump ahead to that. Oh, okay. I'm Actually, I already to. said it. It was a contract ratification. I think that's, uh, I mentioned that in the first in half. In the first half, yes. yeah. Even in Second Chronicles, look what it says. And they roasted the Passover lamb with fire according to the rule. And they boiled the holy offerings in pots, in cauldrons, and in pans, and carried them quickly to all the lay people. It was food. Which what would they, yeah, what would they? What else would they do with it? They yeah. would eat it. These were peace offerings. It was yeah. food. So there, it's how an ancient society dealt with food, and we're so used to today with, you know, our refrigerators and restaurants down the street, and just how much more advanced we are. We don't make the connection to what they were doing in their society to what we're doing today. Hmm. It's just different. So this is almost kind of like a, this. This example is almost like a. Food pantry, or a, a, a uh, yeah, food pantry situation. Yes, and food I, bank. I'm going to go into much more detail in the in, in the next episode as to what these offerings were for. That's kind of the main point to this. I just want to give an overview today so that we can see what they're for. After that was the the laver, the bronze laver. Um, it was there's no size given. It was made of solid brass, and the purpose was to wash before service. So they just washed there. That's all it was, was to wash. Okay, and you think about their society. There's a whole lot to do about this red heifer thing, right? Have you ever looked into that? I have not, I'm not in detail. <laughs> others have, and uh, I know others prefer not to talk about it, but tell us what you feel. Well, ancient societies did this. They took a, a red heifer, and they basically burnt it, and they put cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet, and they did this outside the camp, and then you would wash in the labor with it. If, if you just look up what these ingredients are, it's how you make soap. You mm. can Google making soap. Ancient societies made soap out of ashes and fat. And there's hundreds of recipes online of how to make soap. I didn't and, realize ashes were involved. Yes, there's two different ways, and ashes are involved. Well, there's lots of different ways, but you know, mm. our grandparents probably did this. It wasn't that long ago that you know, lye is what you make out of it, basically. And there's different types of soap you can use. The um, If you research the scarlet wool would provide like a rough texture to it, kind of like lava soap. Mm. And, you know, it's just what they washed with. And, you know, we make a big to-do about it, like it's some ritual. And it, I don't think it was. There was nothing about it that was ritualistic in my mind. It's how their society would wash before they butcher your meat. And you already mentioned hospitals. The physicians, before they go see... The patient, don't they have to wash? We do that today. Yep. In, in the spirit of the law, the intent and purpose of this law, we're doing it today. If we're more advanced, I would say that's okay. Yeah. It's not any different. And we're not any, you go to any restaurant, go to the bathroom. <laughs> Employees, you better wash after you go back to work. Yeah. They deal with food. I mean, in the spirit of the law, we're following 
the labor in what it was for. You know, it's, it's funny about uh, washing. So when you look at society from 1900 to say 2000, that 100 year period, uh, there was all kinds of diseases we had in the US that, that sort of just disappeared and you can see the line coming down as what happened? We got better sanitation yes. in the country. So it's like as we come back to what Yehovah is teaching us, all of a sudden, we have longer lifespans and, and everything, everything that God wants for his people uh, from the Bible. Yes, and there's, I've, I've heard this story before and I probably should have checked to verify, but you know, doctors used to not wash before they'd go deal with someone sick and then deliver a baby. Right. And then our, the, the survival rate of babies was very low and then someone discovered microbes and biology and we should wash before we switch patients. All of a sudden, our, the death rate of births Mm-hmm. you know, went down. And, you know, God told us not, he, he told us how to do it, and we right. just wouldn't listen. Just wash your hands. Just wouldn't listen. listen. <laughs> so after that, off to the side, there are some butchering stalls. And the Bible doesn't directly say there's butchering stalls, but the temple had them, so we can mm. assume there probably were. Just because it doesn't say it doesn't mean there wasn't. I would assume there's more implements in the tabernacle than the Bible says. We always assumed, he just gave the bare minimum sometimes. Um, there were probably some ha- meat hangers to hang the meat. If you've ever butchered an animal before, I don't know if you have or not, but I have. And you, you usually hang it so that you can deal with it. Right. You know, if you had hunters, they would do the same thing or they would be on the ground. And Deuter- ensure the blood is drained. Yeah, Deuteronomy 12 yeah. tells you how to do it. I mm-hmm. mean, God answered all these questions for us. This system is just for how you deal with your meat mm-hmm. and how you deal with your food. And um, finally, there's the tabernacle, that's the tent. So I wanna kinda go look at those items also. I don't know if we have enough time, but hopefully. If you went inside, you'd see the holy place. There's basically three items there, okay? On the right is the table of showbread. It was three feet by two feet by one and a half, gold over acacia wood. 12 loaves of bread were on it, dishes for the bread. There were spoons, pitchers, and bowls. The purpose was for the priesthood to eat. Hmm. It was a table to have a meal. We go a lot farther with that with our religious thinking sometimes, but it was just to have a meal. In fact, I'm going to connect this table in the love gift offering that you were mentioning. That'd be great. I, the connection with the table of showbread and communion is awesome. And it's probably my favorite teaching I've ever taught. And I get to do it every year because we host a big Passover, Lord's Supper, um, you know, celebration. And I get to teach it to everybody that shows up. We sometimes have 50, 60 people there. It's really neat. And it's because of this. People want to come because we're doing communion wrong. So that's a little preview to, I think it's one of the most important teachings I've ever done. So the, the love gifts should be interesting. Oh, great. Well, should thank you for sharing that with us. I love it. But beyond that, over to the left side is the uh, golden candlestick or the menorah, whatever you, mm-hmm. however you want to put it. Um, the scripture tells you very clearly the whole purpose was to give light on the space in front of it. It lights up the holy place. Mm-hmm. That's Especially with all the gold being yes, in the place. <laughs> that's their lighting system. That's what societies back then did. Mm. They used fire to light up their buildings and their indoor spaces, and that's just what they did. It was made of pure gold. It was beaten with a hammer, so you couldn't, like, mold. You had to hammer it into, into shape, basically. Uh, seven candles, six branches. The knops were like almonds on the branches. It was lit continually. 
So they kept it lit continually. Okay, and behind that is the veil. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm skipping the altar of incense. This one is also one of my favorites because when you understand the purpose behind this, and we're not gonna get to that today, but uh, it, it's pretty fascinating. It really relates to the sin offering and the trespass offering. Uh, but the altar of incense was three foot by one and a half foot by one and a half feet. So it was kind of tall, but narrow. And uh, it was gold over acacia wood, four horns of gold were on it. It had a censer, so it burned incense, basically. Uh, Twelve bowls, sweet spices, and the purpose was to burn incense twice daily. So they mm. opened up the tabernacle with it, and they closed business for the day, burning incense. And there's more to it when we get to the sin and trespass offering. But uh, the altar of incense is just a really neat place, uh, a really neat understanding that I'd like to share and Trying to give a little teaser here for it, but um, it, it's one of my favorite parts oh, of the Oh, it sounds fascinating. It sounds like something I haven't heard before. So Yeah. <laughs> and then behind it's the veil. And um, the sin and trespass offering also, the sprinkling of blood is often misunderstood. And I want to really go into that from a different, more legal perspective when we get to there. But after the sin and trespass offering, they'd sprinkle blood, and one of it was right before this veil. Mm. And that's very significant, especially for the Day of Atonement. It's painting a picture of what's going on. So that's the veil we're talking about, is the one right behind the altar of incense, is a veil that goes into the Holy of Holies. And every time someone would sin, you know, sin means breaking the law, so mm -hmm. someone would commit a crime in their nation, they'd have to pay their fine in a sin or trespass offering, and that blood would go sprinkle before the veil. And that was very significant because on the Day of Atonement, that blood was dealt with again. Mm. And that is what our Messiah took care of. That's really what he did. And I think we'll see that by the end of this episode. But um, after the veil is the Holy of Holies. And this is something that's different than the holy place. The Ark of the Covenant's there. This is kind of a, a, an important thing and very misunderstood. In the, they didn't know. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says they didn't understand it. Hmm. You know, the Holy Spirit thus signifies that the way into the holiest of all was not yet known while the old tabernacle. So they didn't know. They had hmm. no idea what this was all about. But that tabernacle, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, had the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and the pot of manna. On top of it was the mercy seat. That's where God dwells. This is a very unique place. God dwelt there. And it was basically to commune with God. The high priest would go there and communicate with God. Hmm. And you can talk a whole lot about uh, how that happened. It's not my intent to go there because that stuff's interesting, but sometimes I think we miss the whole intent behind it because we're trying to figure out like the Urim and the Thummim and how all that worked. And um, I don't want to say it's irrelevant to me because I don't want to sound disrespectful to that in any way. But um, we're missing something because we're focusing on that mm. instead of what's really happening. Okay, so that's pretty much the tabernacle. I think I have one more slide to share, but... Um, yeah, please, go ahead. Any yeah. comments or questions at all? No, or? it's very interesting. It's, it's good to understand that there's more to this than we think there is. Yeah. And so I'm curious to see all this in the <laughs> okay. upcoming episodes. So. I, this is my favorite topic, so I get very excited about it. So I hope that, <laughs> hope that comes across. Well, if you were bored up here, that'd be bad, right? <laughs> yeah, so, it, yeah, it would. No one would watch, and then I'd feel really bad. So, <laughs> so Moses built a tabernacle, 
It was a tent. They were a nomadic society, so they traveled, right? Mm -hmm. God said to build it just as he said. Better get it right, Moses, because this is how I told you to do it. Right. But then Solomon, he built a temple. Why was Solomon allowed to do that? Why wasn't he required to build it like Moses was commanded? Good question. We, we look at this wrong. Moses had to build it that way because God told Moses you got to build it that way. Because they're a nomadic society. It has to be that way. He probably told them all the, the items to use and what materials to use based on what they had. If they had different stuff, would he have told them something different? Right. Probably. Right. Well, they had, where did they get the gold from? Well, that was oh, from their spoils of yes. Egypt, and that's what they had. God's working with them where they're at. Does he do that with America? Hmm. I think he does. I think he expects us to follow his commandments within our culture the way America is. And we can do it. If you understand the spirit of the law, we could do that. And look at what Solomon did. Instead of a laver, he put a bronze sea. It's not this little place to wash. It's a huge sea. And there were oxen around it, and flowing water came out of the oxen. So you can have living water, running water to wash. Well, that's a better way to wash, isn't it? Why was that okay for him to advance like that? Hmm. I mean, this is examples of the spirit of the law. If, if a society is more advanced than that, could they be that way? I mean, could America have a big cistern up on a mountain with PVC pipe coming down to its place where its government functions and have hot and cold running water and wash with a soap? Could, could we do that? Hmm. I think the spirit of the law allows that stuff. So I really, really do. Concepts, when, you, yeah. when you look at it that way and you see how many times things changed, I mean, because even the second temple, and I know, probably the third temple, the second temple, Nehemiah, and, but the second temple, that's the only picture I could find was Herod. It was, it was different. It was it different there the again. Same, yeah. Right. And then you go to the millennium, it's even more different. Right. Are but you, it's the same purpose, the same intent behind it. Right. The, the, the themes are all the same. There's nothing yes. that's, that's broken here. It's all, no, it, it, they're it's not, all a cohesive theme. Yeah. They're not breaking God's law and doing this. They're following it with slightly different culture, more advanced, less advanced, different. Every nation can do mm. that. And when you think about the tabernacle system, the temple system, as a government, you can take what I'm going to share today and compare it to your nation's government. See how we're doing. All right. Well, hold that thought. This is fascinating. We're going to come back next week. Uh, you've already promised four episodes, so I guess we're going there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so stay with us. We're going to be here for a while. Steve Seekin, thank you for joining us on Shabbat Night Live. This is very fascinating. I hope you're finding it just as interesting and intriguing <laughs> as I am. So we'll see you back here next week. Until then, Shabbat Shalom.